Welcome to Deus Books. Join us on a journey into the heart of Catholicism through the most interesting reading, stories, and doctrines that the Church has to offer. So, we're going to do something a little different for the start of this episode. We are Today we're going to be reading a book called The Benedict Option, which is not so much a religious study book, but more of a strategy for religion. And because of that, and because of the nature of this book, it's important to say that um, we are reading this to understand the author's perspective. It, it we, Me and uh, Johannes aren't necessarily going to agree with everything this guy has to say. Correct. And the strategies he thinks about. But... I think it is valuable just to understand this perspective to begin with. Some good food for thought. Yes. Yeah, it's interesting. He he proposes stuff that's interesting to think about. Yeah, we, we will be dialoguing with this book. Yeah. Um, more so than we've probably done with any other book. We're going to be, you know, yeah. we'll probably disagree with some of the things he says. We'll probably agree with some of the things he says. And uh, it might be a mix of both. Right. This will be probably more of a banter episode. Yes. Which some people might like. Well, we'll see. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so this is, uh, the book's called The Benedict Option, and it's basically a strategy about, uh, this guy essentially thinks that religion has lost the culture war, and we need to act accordingly because we have been defeated as the church the church has been defeated um so like an analysis of the post-christian world basically. yes that's a good way of putting it so you ready do it rock and roll so he basically starts off this book and he says um the time has come when men and women of virtue would understand that continued full participation in mainstream society was not possible for those who want to live a life of traditional virtue. And so he proposes a strategic withdrawal that he calls the Benedict Option. The idea is that serious Christian conservatives could no longer live business-as-usual lives in America, that we have to develop creative communal solutions to help hold us on to our faith and our values in a world growing ever more hostile to them. Why does he call it the Benedict Option? He calls it the Benedict Option because it comes from the Benedictine monastery order. So St. Benedict, he created this um, monastery. He wasn't the first like a monastery that was created, but right. he was like the first big one. His rule, yeah. He came up with rules and standards for living as a monk. And so he's really kind of considered the father of the monastic movement. Western monasticism. Yeah. Yes. Um, so that's why it's called the Benedict Option. Um, so, yeah. He kind of starts off this book just doing a quick survey of like all the reasons why he thinks we are living in a post-Christian, a, a world post-Christian isn't exactly put it the way this guy puts it, a world that is openly hostile to Christianity. Yeah. And by the way, he's not inventing this strategy. It's a strategy that was prophesized basically by 
theologians, you know, a hundred years ago or or prior. And so he's basically saying that this world that is trending away from the church has has come now. And now is the time to implement a strategy that's essentially already been theorized. Yeah. And so this book is just kind of him defending that. Um, so here's the passage he says. And this is a good kind of thesis for his whole book. He says, We as Christians are going to have to change our lives and our approach to life in radical ways. In short, we are going to have to be the church without compromise, no matter what its cost. Um, I also think it's worth mentioning his own like little caveat or, you know, disclaimer that he mentions. He says, this book does not offer a political agenda, nor is it a spiritual how-to manual, nor a standard decline and fall lament. True, it offers a critique of modern culture from a traditional Christian point of view, but more importantly, it tells the stories of conservative Christians who are pioneering creative ways to live out the faith joyfully and counterculturally in these darkening days. So he's basically like uh, given up on the world, essentially. In a way, so it's a little, yeah, it's a little dark to like, say that, but that's essentially like we. We've tried to, to fight the good fight for society's sake, and the world is running away with it, and we, this is how we should respond. Yeah, in fact, here's what, he, here's what he says at the end of this page. If the salt is not to lose its savor, we have to act. The hour is late. This is not a drill. So he's, throwing, he's pushing the panic button. Yes. He's basically said we've been defeated, and this is our... This is what we this have to do This is our now. recourse. Okay. Yes. Um, so he, he says this. Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI foretells a world in which the church will live in small circles of committed believers who live the faith intensely and who will have to be somewhat cut off from mainstream society for the sake of holding on to the truth. Hmm. So let, let, let's talk about that for a second there, Johannes. Yeah. Um, he's basically saying that if you if Christians really believe what we say we believe, we can't be a part of the world right now. Yeah, that I mean, it's uh, when I can see why he would make this argument. Because it's becoming at least, and this is something we have to be very, I think is, is very easy to overlook. I think it's, it's way too easy to overlook this. A lot of times when we look at the state of the church and also the church in relation to the world, we're looking at it from an, a Western Eurocentric lens which is typically how, especially, obviously, in the West, we view all the things. What we fail to take into account is the church is blowing up in Africa, is blowing up in Southeast Asia, and we're literally importing religious from those two areas of the world yeah. because the church is thriving there. In the West, you can argue, in a lot of places in the West, the church is in decline. And so it's kind of like, okay, 
where where does this Benedict option apply? Because it clearly doesn't apply in Africa right. or well, Southeast Asia, but on you know in the United States of America or Canada or or at least certain parts of the yeah. United States, I could see this applying a little bit more. Yeah, particularly like the Northeast, the West Coast. Yeah, but the the Catholic Church in the South is is doing well. Yeah, and so are other Christian denominations are actually uh, growing, like uh, Pentecostals and Evangelicals are growing in the United States. But he does say, this is interesting. It's almost it's, it's like you predicted this, Johannes. He says, Jesus Christ promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church, but he did not promise that hell would not prevail against his church in the West. So I guess that's your distinction right there. Is yeah. he, it seems like he's only talking to the West right now. Yes. Now my, and I might be jumping because we still have this whole entire book to go, but I'm just trying to wrap my head around this, this standpoint that he's taking. Okay, so he's addressing the church in the West. Okay, that's good. I'm glad he, he makes that distinction because that immediately addresses my First concern is like, well, the church is th- growing in other parts of the world. Um, and I guess then I, I might be getting ahead, like I said, but if we're secluding ourselves in these small Christian churches and circles in the West, what would that look like on a global scale? Yeah, it'd be hard to... You, you know, really your best analogy is is to look at places where being a Christian is still dangerous. Like, like Nigeria. Physically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like where where are people getting killed for their faith? Like how those communities would probably be the closest thing to what he's proposing. That would okay. be my thought, maybe. Okay. Kind of like the I'm assuming he's alluding back he's going to allude back to the early church and how Yes. They had to for survival they had to run things. Yeah. You know, he has, he he quotes Benedict the Sixteenth a lot. He says, um, "Benedict the Sixteenth said we are facing a fifteen hundred year flood." In two thousand twelve, the then Pope said that the spiritual crisis overtaking the West is the most serious since the fall of the Roman Empire near the end of the fifth century. I'd agree with that. I think I would too. Uh, I think that's fair to say. I think there's a lot of. And in many ways, the last century has been, you know, since the 60s into now, has been one of the probably darker times for just spirituality in general. Yeah. You know, if you if you look at one of the things I'm always really interested in is like what are like the what are sociological trends associated with religion. And it is interesting that like throughout in the United States history, um, people that got away from organized religion were always still very spiritual. So even like the millennial generation who is not very church oriented, yeah, were still very into spirituality. But if you look at the next generation, Generation Z, yeah, they are not interested in either for the most part. Yeah, more so than any other generation, which is interesting a little depressing but it's yeah. not even that they're into spirituality and just not the unor just not the organized part they're kind of getting away from all of it yeah 
He does say, by God's mercy, the faith may continue to flourish in the global south and China, but barring a dramatic reversal of current trends, it will all but disappear entirely from Europe and North America. So he really has a negative outlook. At least that's how I'm reading this so far. Yes. Yeah, a little too negative. In, in yeah, I think, I, I don't know if I would... Sure. <clears throat> Again, this is very, like, America-centric because I live in the United States. So I could see, like, in places like Canada where that's possible. But I don't know, with, with the American politics and culture... Like, I don't see the South ever losing its religion. Yeah, that's why, you know, the diversity in America is really interesting when you're thinking about this topic in particular, because let's say you're a politician running for office. There are places in this country where claiming you are a Catholic or any mainstream Christian, that would basically all but sink your campaign. Yeah. And but on the same side, there are places in this country where if you are not you don't Christian or Catholic, you will not get elected. So it's a really weird uh, dichotomy almost yeah. that the United States has um, in regards to faith. But uh, he says he, he puts forward some evidence here. He says, according to Pew Research Center, one in three 18 to 29 year olds have put religion aside if they ever picked it up. In the first place, and if the demographic trends continue, our churches would soon be empty. I mean, I guess based on pure mathematics, that's true. Like, based on pure statistics, his argument's valid. It's just, gonna, it's just a matter of how long it's going to take to get there. Yeah. And this is, uh, he quotes another study from 2005 with the same age group. And I'd love to get your thoughts on this, but they say in most cases, the results of this study, teenagers adhere to a mushy pseudo religion that researchers deemed moralistic therapeutic deism or MTD. MTD has five basic tenets. Number one, a God who exists and created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. Okay. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Okay. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Yeah, I see that. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he is needed to resolve a problem. Mm -hmm. And the last one is, Good people go to heaven when they die. <laughs> I I would agree with his. Is this what he's saying that religion is is come to? Is that what he, is yeah? He's saying that the that most teenagers in in two thousand five, what they think about religion, that's what they believe. Those five points, right there. I was a teenager in two thousand five, so yeah, I could see I I could see that study being legitimate. Especially the point, and we're really seeing this now. It's happiness is above all. Yeah. I, that I think happiness is like our God now. Is society's God? You know, to to hell with suffering, to hell with anything that offends me, to hell with anything that counters how I think, what I think. 
I am my own universe. I could def I, I do see that. And um I think this is what when most people say they believe in God, I think these five things are what they believe. So I think it's important maybe me and you can draw some distinctions between what what does Catholic uh, theology say about these five statements That's about God. That's a good idea. So the first one, a God who exists, who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. That's not that bad. That's more or less probably what we believe. The only thing I would caution is that phrase, watches over. It's almost like the unmoved mover type uh, view almost. Yeah. But that idea of watches over, I don't know what that means. Does that mean God intervenes all the time or that he doesn't intervene at all? I mean... I think he just like literally just like supervises. I think that's what that means. And so and and so the church would disagree with that. Yes, the church would definitely. That's how I thought. It sounds like the unmoved mover to me. Like God moved all the pieces, and now it's just and it's just kind of sitting back and right. watching. Which Wasn't is that not Plato. Who was that that came out with that? Uh, that comes from, well, Saint Augustine or Saint uh, Thomas Aquinas uses that phrase but he got it probably from aristotle that's it yeah um he kind of plays with that idea a little bit but he uses that to prove that a god exists not right. that's not his statement about yeah. god yeah right the church would disagree with god just being like an overseer who doesn't do anything right who's just watching so most of point one the church she would agree with except for mainly that part about just overseeing stuff yeah okay number two god wants people to be good nice and fair to each other as taught in the bible and by most world religions i mean yes for the most part the the only i guess the only thing that would that raises a caution flag for me is is nice yeah I like hate, yeah. i don't know what your definition for nice is nice in the sense that you want the best for the person yes that's true yeah i have a problem with with a yeah, nice like it love is not always nice yeah love can be painful excruciatingly so I think overall the church would would have this, and I think we're going to find this with a lot of these, maybe except for like the last one. Like it softly agrees with like the basic idea with a lot of these, but it like it's going to be. There's some caveats. Yeah, we were kind of talking about this on our episode on Thomas Merton. Remember when we were talking about love? And we were talking about how if you love someone, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're just letting them do right. whatever Admonishing they want. Admonishing is a part is an is a virtuous act. Yeah. The central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. You kind of already addressed that. Well, one. the central goal is not. I think the church would agree with that or disagree with that. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. Well, well, here's the thing. The second part I disagree with. The central goal of life is is to be happy. I would say the Catholic Church, the central goal of life is to to be with God. Right. right? To That's build the, the kingdom goal. of God. Yes. Which will ultimately make you happy, though. Right. Feel good about oneself? Not so much. <laughs> 
I mean, you need to, I mean. Be at peace with yourself. Yes. Yeah. Like, does feel good about mean like you don't feel guilty about anything you do? Right. Again, yeah. it's 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 all these little details. Devils in the details, as the cliche says. God does not need to be particularly involved no, in one's life except when it is needed to solve a problem. The church vehemently would disagree with yes, that. Yes, that is a problem. Yeah, in fact, if you have a problem that needs resolved, one of the things that's taught in the Bible, a lesson that's taught in the Bible over and over again is God's not always going to come down and, and swoop down and save it. Right. He's not this fairy godmother that just saves the day. Good people go to heaven when they die. The church would, again, like the other ones, would agree that the people in heaven are good. (laughs) But that's not the the only standard. Yeah. Because ultimately, ultimately, you have to want to be with God. Yes. And so could could someone be a good person by all metrics but still reject God? Yes. Yes, that is theoretically possible. Yeah, and like we talked about a couple of, uh, episodes ago in, in The Great Divorce, is it's the, at the end of the day, it's the choice. Right. You have to choose God. Yes. And you could be the best person in the world and... By your free will, that's the important piece, by your free will, reject him. Um, I'm going to kind of skip ahead because what he basically does for the next 10, 20 pages is just lay out evidence to defend his perspective, those, you know, sort of dark perspectives that he has about the church in the West. And and I'll say this. I'll I'll give you my opinion on it. Uh he's mostly right. I I think <laughs> I think the next 20 to 30 years for the Catholic Church is going to be very tough for some people, especially in the West, which is what he's saying. Yeah, yeah because um do I think it's at a point where like all of society has uh rejected Christianity culturally? I don't I don't think it's quite that far, but to his point the data in every way suggests a rapidly declining church culture in the uh in the west i would agree with that so he says christians are going to have to come to terms with the brute fact that we live in a culture one in which our beliefs make increasingly little sense we speak a language that the world more and more either cannot hear or finds offensive to its ears rather Then wasting energy and resources fighting unwinnable political battles, we should instead work on building communities, institutions, and networks of resistance that can outwit, outlast, and eventually overcome the occupation. So there's his strategy right there. I, I've from time to time, I will I will think about this, and I'll think of and I'll think about this strategy and. There's a group that comes to mind whenever I think of this, and it's the Amish. Would this strategy render us Amish? They live, they literally live apart from, their word would be English society. 
to me, that's all I picture. When, that, right. Like after I read this book, that's exactly what I pictured. It's like, it's like in his I in what he's essentially saying is we should gather up like a parish should essentially be its own like little autonomous region right. where everybody who's part of the parish works in that little community, so everyone's taken care of, yeah, and gets educated there and grows up there, you know, socializes there. Uh, everything within your community. I, I think that strategy i would be more open to that strategy if we were still involved in the community so for example we had this you know like uh, you know every diocese has these parishes and the catholics live around the parish the parish is the center point of life everyone's going to a catholic school or it's homeschooled we don't necessarily have anything to do with the public schools but we are together and still somehow connected to the community in terms of community service, helping the homeless, housing people that need shelter, those types of things, which happened in the Middle Ages and such. So I would be open to the strategy if that's what it was. I'm just scared of, of the, the Amish situation happening where we're completely closed off and people just come to buy our woodwork or whatever we'd be good at. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Here's here's another critique to the Amish strategy. And I didn't come up with this. This was uh, explained by one of the professors to me who did a lot of work with the dialogue with the Catholic Church and the Amish community. And he was like, listen, the Amish community likes to say that they don't assimilate to culture. But they do. It's just 16th century Swiss culture that they assimilate to mm. because they still have, I mean, it's not like they're living in the Stone Age. Correct. They still have, they basically live in the society that was 16th century Switzerland. And so it's like, it's weird to just sort of draw a line and say, this far, this is how far we'll go and now we're done. And and it it is and it does seem very contrary to the idea of the church in the modern world. How does the church stay relevant? And you know, we read that document yeah. on this podcast. Um, but yeah, it, some of his examples are the early um, figures in the monastic world. So he, he talks about Saint Anthony of Egypt um, was the first hermit, and basically. What St. Anthony did is he lived in Egypt and he basically rejects the world. He he uses this, I've read his diary. Well, the the book, the biography written on him based on his diary. And basically he just had this idea that I'm going to die to the world. It was this idea that, okay, you know, it used to be illegal to be a Christian. Correct. You would get killed for your faith. Yes. And that was the ultimate test for you. Right. You you were considered an instantaneous saint if you were martyred for your faith. Yeah. And they're like, well, we can't do that anymore because no one's hunting us down and killing us. So the next best thing I can do to prove my dedication is to die to the world. Mm -hmm. And so St. Anthony went and he lived in a cave for like 30 years by himself. All alone. He and Unless... God explicitly called him to that life. A voca if, if that was your vocation. Right. I don't think we are, like, 
that's precisely counter to what Jesus tells us to do. Right. Jesus does not tell his disciples to go live in a cave. He does quite the opposite. He tell This is why I kind of have trouble with this entire option unless there is a community uh a caveat because Christ tells us to go into all the world and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is his final instruction before he went to heaven to his disciples. Yeah. So if I'm retreating and secluding myself, I am completely going against what he said to do. Now, I think it's perfectly acceptable to form these Catholic communities where parish is the center of life, kids are homeschool, Catholic school, whatever, but there's still this community outreach. That I would be okay with. Yeah, and I think, to the author's credit, I think he's not saying that we need to retreat like this and that's the final strategy. Mm -hmm. I think he's just saying we've essentially got to weather the storm this way. If I'm if I'm to defend his outlook a little bit, I th I think that's more of where he's coming from. Now now Saint Anthony, one of the interesting things about him is people were so basically enthralled with this idea that he would go live in a cave that people emulated him and they went and sought him for wisdom, and so he would speak to them and and give them guidance, and that this idea of people going out and trying to follow in the footsteps of St. Anthony, that is what started the first monastic community where, okay, we're not, I'm not going to go live in a cave by myself, but me and these 12 other people who want to do the same thing are going to live by ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that was what started kind of the first monasteries. Right. Um, so there is a little bit of that, but it is, it is a, it is a tricky thing because on one hand you are literally following in the footsteps of Jesus. I mean, St. Anthony, he sold everything he owned because he wanted to literally f live up that Bible quote, go sell everything you own and come follow me. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so that's what he did. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough. It's, a, it's an interesting little dynamic. But I, I think the key is your vocation, you know? Right. If God is calling you to go do that, and that's gonna and that's gonna lead you to inspire and impress other people, then that might be a valid. Yeah, but it, that has to be a part of it, right? It does I because think so. every vocation is for the sake of the other. A vocation is not for yourself. A vocation is for the other person or people. So, yeah, your vocation is never for you uh, other than it's for your salvation. But the way it's lived is for other people. Uh, he says, um, this is interesting. One of the things I agree with him, he says, uh, our culture today is, is uh, governed by relativism. Oh, 100% true. We are governed not by faith or reason or by any combination of the two. We are governed by what McIntyre called emotivism, the idea that all moral choices are nothing more than expressions of what the choosing individual feels is right. One, I 100% agree with this. I do I too, and I think it's the most dangerous idea out there. Yes. Relativism. Moral relativism is a cancer. 
because what it what it essentially is 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 basically that you have no moral principles. You're not going to say murder is wrong. You're not going to say anything is bad. It's uh, what do you think is good or bad or whatever? Right. And the glaring problem with that is there are people who think the right thing to do is to kill people, murder people, kidnap right, people. Right, look for, at the extremists. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's a very dangerous idea. And and I would agree. I I think most people, you know, when I'm when I'm teaching religion, the ki- the students don't know what they're they believe in is relativism. They're not using that words, but that's what their beliefs are right. for the most part. But I do think deep down people want a standard. Yeah. Problem is when you let people create the standard, it is a flawed standard because people who are flawed have created it. So the argument can be, well, the only standard that is not flawed is a standard that God creates. And so our relation to this standard is what will be good or bad. Because if people, if I just create this standard, well, what if I think your standard is stupid and then I find out that your standard is wrong? What now? Your standard is worthless. Yeah. So there has to be some standard that is beyond human making that we would call dogma. Yeah. And and that's why the church doesn't change dogma because when you change dogma, now you've changed God's standard. Yeah, and and probably the big cornerstone of of what is what is that standard or what does that look like? It's probably the Ten Commandments. Yeah, and the Beatitudes. Though that is what God considers moral. Um, you know, it's interesting. The best critique I ever heard to relativism was uh, made by C.S. Lewis in his book *Mere Christianity*. He said, all human societies have the same moral compass. It might vary a little bit here and there, but for example, try and think of a culture that has a completely backwards morality. Think of a culture that praises people for fleeing battle, for example. Mm. You know what I mean? So so a, a culture might... Believe in human sacrifice, for example. That's something wildly outlandish to a Western culture. But they still value human life. That's why it's called a sacrifice. So much so that they sacrifice, yeah. They're practicing it in a messed up way, but they still believe in human life as important. And so they are. that's not an example of someone that has a different moral compass. And and that's an interesting critique to me. That is an interesting critique. Um. He says, the reality of our situation is indeed alarming, but we do not have the luxury of doom and gloom hysteria. There is a hidden blessing in this crisis if we will open our eyes to it. Just as God used chastisement in the Old Testament to call his people back to himself, so he may be delivering a like judgment onto a church and a people grown cold from selfishness, hedonism, and materialism. The coming storm may be the means through which God delivers us. Interesting outlook. I don't... Here, here's my problem. And, and I see this a lot with, like, uh, 
some of the more conservative Protestant denominations. This idea that, you know, maybe all this bad stuff is happening because God is judging us like mm-hmm. he did. To me, all that idea of God chastising his people, calling his people back, all that kind of goes out the window with the crucifixion. That's my take. Yeah. You know, like these big sweeping judgments, like all that's kind of nullified with the sacrifice on the cross. Right, because the right, because Jesus made the the ultimate atonement for sin. The price has already been paid. Right. So why would he have to do it again? Right. That would that would render the crucifixion less and that at that point then okay, well if the crucifixion is less, then what's the point? Like if God's just gonna keep chastising, that means Christ's atonement wasn't complete. Which yeah. renders the crucifixion useless. And yeah, and, and it's you know, the cornerstone of our faith. So that's bingo. <laughs> kind of a big deal, yeah. Now, um the next chapter, um, he taught he goes th- he does a a sweeping view of history where he kind of says, Here's how we got here. And he goes all the way back to basically the fall of the Roman Empire into the Middle Ages, into the Renaissance, and into the Industrial Revolution, uh, and then into the Protestant Reformation. I'm going to skip most of that because um, I'd rather kind of get into yeah, let's get into the get into his actual like some meat, some of his more strategy stuff. But if you're interested in into why he thinks like we're heading like how we got to where we are you know this chapter is pretty interesting um and it and it's pretty in-depth in each of his stages but in my opinion we skip it so chapter three a rule for living you can't go back to the past but you can go to norcia and the glimpse of the christian past a pilgrim gets there is also i'm confident a glimpse of the Christian future. Norcia, the modern name of Benedict of Nursia's birthplace, is a walled town that sits on a broad plateau at the end of the road that winds for 35 miles through harsh mountains. And and he talks, he kind of goes on and he's basically talking about the way this first Benedictine monastery is set up. And And it's kind of what he kind of describes is is a little bit foreign for us to sort of view it as a paradise or anything of hope, but this idea of this like, you know, oasis in the surrounding, you know, surrounded by everything contrary is hopeful in a way. What do you think about that? Um, well, that kind of goes back to what I mentioned in the beginning, like, you know, or what we've both mentioned so far is this idea of, okay, there's this parish. It's it's kind of set apart. Catholics are living around it. It's the center of the of of Catholic life. I like the idea of it. Like this, you know, this 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 center spring for Catholicism. I like the idea of it. It's attractive to me of like if we, here's 
he mentions like not being able to go back to the past. I th- there was a point, relatively speaking, not very long ago, where the parish was the center of life, where it was this oasis for your life. It's we're not in that situation right now. And so perhaps that is that justifies his argument because that would mean to get back to that situation, we would have to cut ties with society because that's precise. That's that might be the, the point of his argument is that we are the Catholic church or the parish life is one parts of many that comprise a person's life as opposed to it being the center you know, it's just yeah. another institution among many. It's a, it's you know, church. Then there's school. Then there's work. Then there's a government. It's just a part of the mix, instead of being the center focus. Yeah, that might be the why he's making this argument. Um, what are your thoughts on this? You know what I I I think that was interesting how you said instead of the focal point, it's like one facets of many, and I'm gonna. I'm going to leave the name out because I, but basically I remember hearing a speech from a politician who said, um, and I thought it was interesting. He said, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm a conservative. I'm an American. Um, in that order. And, um, it was just weird. I, it's not like there's anything wrong with that quote because, I mean, he's prioritizing. He's a politician, but he, he kind of like, he, he ranks it in this like uh, hierarchy. Yeah. And he goes on too. He, he does, says like seven. But um, I, I would think if you asked the saints to give their understanding of things, they would just stop at the word Christian. Right. You know what I mean? Because everything's supposed to flow from that. Right. So is, if I'm a Christian, then I just, yeah, then there we go. There's nothing else for me to be. Right. It's like all of my actions, thoughts, beliefs should be pointing towards that. Right. Backing up that claim. Yeah. Um, He starts talking about, and th- this stuff I really like from him. He He's talking about Benedict's monastic community and and one of the reasons benedict is famous is because he came up with this rule Mm -hmm. which is basically the picture like a really long rule book and if you were to like google right now benedict's rules you chances are you would be like this is harsh beyond harsh like he talks about manual labor he talks about your prayer life he talks about your thoughts and what you need to be sorry for and all that stuff, and like, and it's very strict, but he makes the argument here um, that, well, here, here's what he, here's his words. Far from being a way of life for the strong and disciplined, Benedict's rule was for the ordinary and weak to help them grow stronger in faith. These rules were not meant to bind you, but to free you. It's like, it's like Jocko always says, discipline <laughs> equals freedom. You know? I was literally just thinking that. <laughs> That's literally what was in my brain. 
Yeah. And I know that that's a concept that you and I both kind of agree with. Yeah. And um, are you familiar with his rule at all? No. Um, it, it's, to me, when I remember the first time I read it, I didn't think it was overly harsh because I kind of knew what the philosophy of the monks were. But there are some things that it's like, I wonder why he felt the need to include that in one of his rules, you know? Like, uh, but it, what he's arguing here is that the more strict, the more standardized we become as a church, the better we'll be. I would agree with that. I think one of the things I can point to, and, and many people might disagree with me on this, is, is our confirmation prep. Confirmation is, is a sacrament of initiation, one of three. And so if we're initiating people into Catholicism, into you know this this life are we one are we teaching the standard two this is the more important one are we upholding the standard are we maintaining the standard because in and this is my humble opinion i there are so many people that go through various confirmation programs that are just doing it to check a box. Yeah. And part of me thinks that we shouldn't permit that. Like, part of me, and this, again, this sounds harsh, but we're just bantering here. Like, part of me thinks that, you know, if, if you're just doing this to check a box, then you shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, I, I agree. I remember the first time I was leading a confirmation prep at a parish, um... It was the first time I was in front of everybody, and then I was like, <laughs> it was a little devious on my part, but I was like, raise your hand if you're ready to graduate from the church, and like half the hands go up, and everybody else was confused, and I was like, I was like, you're in the wrong place. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, that's what people do. They view it as like, this is my graduation from the church, and it's not that they necessarily, it's like they're breaking free of the church, but they've... It, there's this weird understanding where once you go through confirmation, you're now at the point where your parents are going to stop making you go to church and you can kind of stop going because you've received the sacrament. Right. And it's a weird thing. I also think that the church is to blame, uh, partly to blame for this, because in all honesty, again, my humble opinion is the PSR model in the United States is garbage. Yeah. That's my hot take. Johannes's hot take that the classroom PSR model is trash. I think, uh, if you're going to teach the faith, it needs to be done in community. It needs to be done in small groups. It needs to be done with family. Like we have turned into this consumerist church where parents just drop the kids off, they get their Jesus, and then I pick them up, and then everything's hunky-dory, we get them confirmed, we check the box. But what's happening at home? Are you taking this home? So I think we, we, have, to, we have to change that system. That, I think that system enables this checking-the-box mentality 
It's I drop the kids off. They learn their Jesus. I check the box. I did my job. And then I go on my merry way. Yeah. And that perpetuates lukewarm Catholicism. Well, I remember when I was advocating for doubling the amount of times we met for confirmation prep. I remember, yeah. And um, so part of the pushback I got was like, listen, if we double our confirmation meeting requirements, people are just going to go across the street where it's half of what we have now. And so, like, there is this this thing where it's like wherever can get it done the quickest and with yeah. the least impact on my life, that's where our, I I would do. That's where I want to send my kids. You know, that's um, why part of me also wants to like restore the order of the sacraments just to like avoid this headache completely. Just restore the order. Explain ba- yourself. Baptism, confirmation, then Eucharist. Oh, I see what you're saying. You know the 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 East uh, the Byzantines they they do chrismation, where you're you get all three at one go. Yeah, and um, you know, here's I kind of skipped over this, but it's probably worth mentioning. Uh, part of uh, how we got here historically, the first three hundred years the church existed in the Roman Empire, it was kind of confined to the Roman Empire. Um, you could die for being Christian. And so that provided a natural barrier. Nobody was going, there were no, there weren't that many lukewarm Christians because being a Christian could get you killed. So why would you be a part of something that might get you killed if your heart's not in it? Right. And so just naturally, organically, for the first few hundred years, the church, you know, was very dedicated, was very strong. And there were people who renounced their faith when the pressure was put on them. There were lukewarm people, but it wasn't the majority. And and then all of a sudden, Constantine legalizes Christianity, and people sort of flood into the church. And now all these people who put their life on the line for the church are suddenly sitting in the pews with people who maybe don't even know why they're there, but are just doing it because it was like a fad, or it was new, or it was interesting. Oh, it was trendy. Yes. Um and so that's where this guy kind of marks the start of the decline. Um, well, he goes way back. Yeah. <laughs> and and that's part of the reason why monks, why St. Anthony went into the desert, was to separate himself from that type of crowd. This is why, sorry to interject, this is why I think the separation of church and state is ultimately a good thing. Does part of me wish that, like, you know, we could go back to basically like Europe where the church and state were basically unified. Yeah. But we've seen what can happen with that. Lots of bad things can happen with that. And I think it it allows the church to operate more freely if it is separate from government, because then in theory, it wouldn't be corrupted by the government because we can see history to- shows us this, what happens when you mix uh, the crown with the keys. Yeah, for sure. You know, here's another interesting quote. He's talking about the concept of order. And he says, if a defining characteristic of the modern world is disorder, then the most fundamental act of resistance is to establish order. Hmm. So it's interesting what he did there. He's saying that culturally, we, especially in the West, are just sort of like defiant to order be it from the government, 
from the church, from the classroom. Like there's a romanticism and sort of resist sticking it to the man, you know? Yeah. And so he's like, if you really want to be counterculture, countercultural, you won't defy order. You would establish You'd lean order. into it. Yeah, that's interesting, I think. It is interesting because it's it's easier to it's easier to be disordered. It's easier to be undisciplined. It's easier to just, you know, go with the flow. I mean, look at her look around. It's way easier to just be go with the flow, your truth, my truth. It's harder to plant your flag in something and then you know, fight for it or fortify it. It's it's way easier to not do that. So I do agree with his premise here that if you want to be countercultural, you'll you'll plant your flag, you'll be disciplined, you'll create order, and you'll you'll uphold yourself to this standard. Yeah. I do agree with him on that. And and he's still kind of talking about this idea of he's this whole chapter he's explaining why Benedict's rules are so strict. And uh, this is also interesting. He says the order of a monastery produces not only humility but also spiritual resilience. In one sense, the Benedictine monks of Norcia are like a Marine Corps of the religious mm. life, constantly well, training for spiritual warfare. That's a sen- that's a sen- exactly what it is. Yeah. You know, um, in, in the life of St. Anthony, the book written on that first monk, um, he uh, talks about, like, actually, like, having physical combat with demons in the desert and part of that might be well dude's been in the desert by himself for 30 (laughs) years so maybe he's going crazy yeah but the other part of it is if you're going to isolate yourself you know you are susceptible to attack yeah and um you know anthony kind of viewed it as when jesus went into the desert to fast and the devil approached him he kind of felt the same thing was happening to him. Yeah. I, I, again, this goes back to vocation. Like, unless God specifically calls you to, to live that way, we're not called to live that way. Yeah. F- precisely for that reason. Because we're called to be in community. So, uh, yeah, when it comes to, like, the hermits and stuff, I personally, like, struggle with that because I don't relate. Yeah. Like I I I'm way too extroverted for that one. <laughs> and two the thought of living by myself with myself is mortifying to me. You're going to like this. I wonder if I ever told you about this. There's a there's a saint his name's uh Simeon the Stylite and he Stylite. He literally <laughs> climbed on top of a pillar and lived there for 30 years until he died. And what's funny is he did it to get away from people, but then people were so impressed by the fact that he was living on top of a pole that they would, like, go and then, like, stand by the pole until he would preach to them. And then so crowds and crowds would gather. And and it's so funny to me to think this guy was so sick of everybody that he climbs on top of a pole <laughs> and then more people just flock to him. And by the way, it sounds ridiculous, but we know it's real because there was a monastery that was built on that guy's order. And there were bunches of monks who lived on poles in that church. And that church was still around until 2015, and then ISIS blew it up. But, wow. Yeah. I think there's something, I mean, a holy life is attractive. 
Yeah. Like, holiness is attractive. And so, yeah, am I going to go run out and live on a pole? No. But if there's a guy that's doing it, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna have some questions. And I'd be interested to talk yeah, to him for sure. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's when, when, when you're doing something so radical and which requires tremendous discipline. I mean, he's living on a pole <laughs> or the hermit in a cave. Like that requires talk about, you know, cutting yourself off. I mean, you're not, you don't have no friendships, not, none of that. I mean, that's at, at least intriguing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like, okay, I'm going to go see what, you know, he has had all this time to think because it's literally all he can do. I wonder what his thoughts are. Yeah. And I bet you, yeah, I bet you'd have some really interesting prayer moments if that's all you're doing yeah. and you are alone with no distractions. Like there, there is for sure something appealing about that is like, imagine if you were just so lost that you had to do something extreme to sort of snap yourself back into the right priority. I mean, like for anybody that's been on a retreat, like you kind of leave the retreat and you're feeling like extra good about yourself. It's called like a, a retreat high. Yeah, the tr- yeah, the retreat high. And Jesus so it, it's kind of like a more extreme version of that, essentially. I mean, think about what God can do with that space. Yeah. I mean, that's what the point of a retreat is, is to make space for God to talk or for you rather for you to listen. And so imagine what, you know, what God can do with a guy that's given God 30 years of space. But then again, okay, what what do you do with that? What's the point of that? Yeah. There's a, a documentary I watched a long time ago. It's called Extreme Pilgrimage, and it's a BBC documentary. And uh, an Anglican priest basically goes around the world, and he visits all of the um, ascetic disciplines in different religions. And so he goes to he goes and lives with Shaolin monks. He goes and lives in Tibet in the mountains with their mm-hmm. shamans, and and then he goes to the mo- monastery in Egypt where Saint Anthony was. And there's a guy who's been living in Saint Anthony's original cave for like ten years. Whoa! And he goes, and that guy mentors him, and his name's Father Lazarus, and he used to be like an atheist professor. Or philosopher. Wow. And he, you know, had a conversion. And then basically the way Father Lazarus per- explains it, because he goes and talks to this guy, is he says it's a life of penance mm. for him. That's why he's doing it. Um, so just just interesting. And I, I thought that guy would be crazy. He wasn't that he was totally <laughs> with it. It was really interesting. That is that is fascinating. Yeah. I think I would lose my mind. Uh, I for sure would. I would completely lose my mind. Well, when I'm hunting and I'm in a tree stand for 12 hours and I don't talk to anyone, I'm weird. I'm yeah. weird at the end of the day. I couldn't imagine. I could <laughs> not imagine 30 doing years that for in a cave. long time. A and much longer time, anyways. Anyway, so. we've we've bantered about caves and what else does he say? Okay, so a Christian who practices asceticism. So asceticism is like denying yourself comfort purposefully. Yeah. So he says, a Christian who practices asceticism trains himself to say no to his desires and yes to God. That mentality has all but disappeared from the West in modern times. We have become a people oriented around comfort. 
We expect our religion to be comfort comfortable, and suffering makes no sense to us. Oh, yeah, well, look at what's said about mass. Oh, it's not, I didn't get anything out of it. Well, that's not the point. Yeah. You know, I, I, it's boring. It's not comfortable. The music's not entertaining. That's not the point. Yeah, he and he does a good job explaining it. He says, you know, you may be in a time of fasting. So fasting is, is an example of asceticism. Yeah. He says, you may be in a time of fasting and your stomach is growling because you can't eat until 5.30. And then you think, if I can't handle not eating for a few hours, how can I expect to control my more spiritual passions like anger, envy, and pride? Yeah. That's the whole point of asceticism That's right the point. there. Yeah, I mean that's why movements like uh, Exodus ninety, for example, are, are growing in popularity in, in Christian circles, because it's 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 becoming reacquainted with asceticism. We've become, you know, sick of how attached we are to the world. Yeah, that this is a and it is an intense. I've done it. It's an intense exercise to separate yourself from the world, and you do learn like how attached you are. To comfort. Yeah. And and here's kind of how he further explains it. He says, it's not a punishment for being far away. He says, the overweight person diets not to punish him or him, herself for being heavy, but to become healthier. The athlete works out not because he feels guilty for sitting around watching TV, but to train his body with comp for competition. So it is with monks and their asceticism. And so it should be with us lay Christians. We practice self-denial to strengthen ourselves and the love and service of Christ and his people. I agree with that. I do too. I think he's spot on on that yeah. whole concept. Um, is, this is kind of interesting. He, he talks about... This is a an area that I kind of overlooked when I'm thinking about this whole thing, but he, he defends stability um, as a principle. Uh, he says, to stay in one place long enough, the rule requires monks to take a vow of stability, meaning that barring unusual circumstances, including being sent out as a missionary, the monk will remain for the rest of his life in the monastery where he took his vows. This is the most countercultural point of the rule. Yeah. That speaks to today how families are are moving apart because, you know, people find jobs in other states or they just want to live in other states. And so instead of keeping the family unit in one place, they go move across the country. And yeah, see and, each other a couple times a year. And culture, like, our culture romanticizes that. Like, hey, drop what you're doing, just go move in a different place and, and just go on an adventure. Yeah. And leave your family, leave your parents, and just go and see what you're made of. Like, it, it does sound very romantic in a way. Well, it's kind of almost billed as the American dream. Yeah. Just go do whatever you want to do, and it's almost... The, the purpose of that is very, it's, it's, it's not very, it is self-centered. Yeah, and he, he shares a really beautiful story. And I remember the first time I read this, this idea really 
changed the way I thought about my own life. And, and he's saying, this girl was stricken with terminal cancer in 2010, and I saw the immense value of the stability she had chosen. She had a wide and deep network of friends and family to take care of her for her husband and her kids during the 19-month ordeal. The love her community showered on her and her family made the struggle bearable, both in her life and after her death. The witness to the power of stability in the life of her moved my heart so profoundly that my wife and I decided to leave Philadelphia and move to South Louisiana to be near them all. So this he's telling a story about his about his sister who basically his entire family they all like changed cities and moved away to go like chase their dreams yeah. and she did not. And and he's saying that you know that seemed like a dumb decision because it's like you're holding yourself back, you know, but when that happened he saw the value in it. Yeah, I think I will. I do, and I'm sure. I think this is what he's ultimately getting to. I love the idea of what's happening in places like Steubenville, Ohio. There, it's becoming, or like Ave Maria in Florida, it's becoming like a, a Catholic mecca of sorts, like a Catholic community. That in, in Steubenville's case, I guess as in Ave Maria's case, is built around a university, a house of study, and and also the the church, the local church, which is what he's getting at. And I, I do like seeing that because it it offers stability, it offers security, it offers faith, life. Those things are immensely attractive to me. Mm-hmm. And I think, I, I, you know, to his point, I, I do think Catholicism at a, as a whole in the West would be better off if we had more places like that. Yeah, I mean... Like strategic Catholic centers around the country. I mean, you and I have talked about this before with Steubenville. I don't think... I don't think, like, I studied theology in college. I don't think I would have been successful long-term in Steubenville because it can kind of feel like a Catholic summer camp where everybody sort of feels the same way and believes the same thing, and you're in almost like a little bubble. You definitely do get the bubble effect. And where I went, I don't think there was that, and I think that better prepared me to interact with people about the faith in a way that wasn't strange or off-putting. However, what I think what this guy's advocating is imagine if you never left that bubble. Right. Is that not what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like? Right. That's I mean that's the great that's the the crux of it. Yeah. Is I mean I and that's the dif, that's the difficult part of this. Is on one end, yeah, the the what I see happening at Franciscan University in Steubenville is attractive to me because I don't have to be on guard all the time. I don't have to be constantly worried about society bombarding me. I got the devil who's doing enough work. Like to me, it's that that's immensely attractive to be in this bubble. But to your point, depending, 
like again going to your point about uh being able to to relate to people that are outside the bubble and then to my earlier point about what christ was saying you know going to all the world you know it's it's basically this is like an all or nothing approach yeah um Here's kind of a quote that I think addresses some of the concerns that me and you have with this whole philosophy. He says, rather than erring on the side of caution, Benedict believes Christians should be as open to the world as they can be without compromise. I think too many Christians have decided that the world is bad and we should and should be avoided as much as possible. Well, it's hard to convert people if that's your stance. It's a lot easier to help people see their own goodness and bring them in than to point out how bad they are and bring them in. That's true. Yeah. And so I think I think that uh, that idea of be as open to the world as open to the world as you can without compromise. I think that's fair. That's fair. And I do agree with them also that I, if if I'm just hurling fire and brimstone at you, <laughs> you're not going to convert like that's not going to convert anybody. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you look at, for example, Our Lady of, of Guadalupe, that converted many, 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 many more people than the conquistadors ever did. Yeah, it converted basically an entire country. Yeah. Rather quickly too. Right, as opposed to conquistadors coming in and you convert at the point at the end of the sword. You know, you either convert or you're dead. Yeah. And and so I yeah I mean it would I, I mean I would love a bubble I mean especially like you know I'm discerning priesthood so I, of course I would love a bubble <laughs> everyone's coming to the parish like yeah that sounds like a fantastic life uh, but <sighs> that's a, yeah that's a tough one that's a tough one. Um. He's talking about community life, and he says the orientation toward community life stands in stark contrast to a number of other Christian in intentional communities that have fallen apart or become cult-like because, because of an authoritarian leader obsessed with purity mm. and abuse their power. So he says, uh, another brother puts it like this, if a community relaxes its discipline too much, it will dissolve. But if it is too rigid, it'll make people crazy. And he says, if you want to judge a community, you need to see what their fruit is. Are they growing? Are they cheerful? Are they happy? Are they doing good and helping people? Look at what a community produces to see what kind of balance they have. Well, yeah, you'll know them by their fruit. That's biblical as well. Yeah, that's a good, I, I think that's a good standard. So, like, how do you know if you're going too far one way or the other? I think that's a fair, you know, standard point in there. And yeah. And also, is the community open? in terms of open to what it does. Like, you know, a cult is like secretive and because it's doing stupid, terrible things, it, it wants to hide away from the world. A monastic order is open about what it does. It doesn't divulge all the secrets that the individual members have, but in terms of what it does as a whole, it's open about it. Like, yeah, here's our rule. This is how we live. You know, this is so and and then the fruit are that's Jesus says you'll know them by the fruit. Like that's that's the point. Yeah. 
And and you know to go off your uh, thing about Guadalupe, um, I remember this is just kind of a funny tangent, but I remember Bishop Barron was talking about miracles, and he was like, "I judge miracles if they're true or not by their fruit." So he's like, Guadalupe converts an entire country. He's like, the person who thinks they burnt their toast in the face of Jesus, that's not producing any fruit. <laughs> so I don't believe in that. Shout out to Bishop Barron. Yeah. Legend. So we are, you know, we're probably about 30% the way through this book. Um, but it. A lot of this book is more of the same. And then he goes into sort of specific strategies and he sort of talks about like, here are the things that we need to work on. So he talks about liturgy. He talks about music in liturgy. He talks about uh, how Christians should be involved in politics. And he, and he talks about all these little like sort of mini strategies. And there's too many for us to sort of get into so I'm gonna I'm picking this quote because it kind of summarizes his um, sort of his what we do going forward if you kind of believe in his stake of things, and he talks about how because of the way culture has gone in the United States, the church has lost its culture, mm -hmm. the church culture has is gone, and so. Um, and that kind of speaks to what we were talking about, about like the lukewarm people who check the box and all that stuff. And, and so here's, here's what his uh, antidote to that is. He says, basically, focus on the writings of the early church fathers because they're a goldmine of spiritual and theological wisdom. Polycarp, Justin Martyr, Athanasius, Augustine, John Christendom, the Cappadocians, Jerome, Ignatius of Antioch, Clement. These voices from the first eight centuries of the Christian church still speak to us today. Christians seeking to deep their, deepen their connections to the historical Christianity should read these men of God. The church's loss of distinct culture is also a loss for the world, which God intends to bless through the church's life. So I think that's sort of a nice way to kind of it's a nice little call to action, kind of. He's basically saying we need to get in touch with our past because the church's history is rich with writing and insight and wisdom and all that stuff, and, and it can help guide us in a culture like today. I absolutely agree with that. I mean, there's so much that, so much rich tradition that, that we have that because of, I don't know, fads and things that we just don't want to tap into. We want to just make everything new all the time. It's like, I think ultimately people desire authenticity. And I think that's why traditional movements within the church are growing. Yeah. Because they're not just trying to be popular. They're not just trying to be entertaining. They're not just trying to be cool and hip. They're just trying to be. Yeah. Think of it this way. Like, and I, and I think this is a, a way of understanding his whole idea is like, th think about like military training. The military could be a lot bigger. We could have a lot more people. We could have a million Navy SEALs if we just would lower the standards. Yeah. And, but, you know, the, the military wants their standards because they want everybody who's a part of that to be a certain way and to be capable of certain things. And um, 
in a way, he's kind of proposing that for the church. Not that we should, you know, be as uh, aggressive with our standards as the military is, yeah. but I, I think it's kind of like a, I don't know, it's an in, it's an interesting proposal, and um, my overall thoughts on his stuff are, I do like his philosophy, but I don't think we're there yet. That's my thoughts. Yeah, I think... Uh, like I've said, some of the stuff he's saying is, is attractive. I'm just concerned about going back to the way beginning of what we were talking about. I'm concerned with ending up like the Amish. Yeah. That's my concern. I love the idea of a Steubenville or an Ave Maria where these, these amazing Catholic communities are happening. But it, it's good to have centers of that rich Catholicism around for people to tap into. But we can't abandon the world. We're called to be in it. And so that's kind of the, the, the view that Archbishop Chaput takes in his book, Strangers in a Strange Land, is, is we're called to be in it. It might be ugly, it might be completely counter to, to what we believe, but we're called to be in it. And I think I think there's going to be a natural uh, progression toward kind of what the, kind of that Benedict option looks like. Mm-hmm. But as long as we're engaged with open society, I don't think we'll ever completely get there yeah. until people start dying. And, and here's here's the thing that I think he misses in this book that he doesn't really address. That's another sort of sticking point for me is he, he's doing a good job explaining, look, this is where our culture is clashing with the church's beliefs. And he's pointing them out and it sounds scary and stuff. But there are things that this culture agrees in, agrees with the church on. You know, there's still common ground. There's still points of agreement. And I don't think it's like he's almost painting it like the church is an adversary of the government in a way. Yeah. Or uh, or not of the government, but of culture. And I don't think it I think it's more complicated than that. I think I think it's an ally and uh, adversary, depending on the issue. Right. It just depends on what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I look to people like, you know, Bishop Barron who is is able to see the the small truths in open society and celebrate them. I think that's which is is missing from this yeah, in my opinion. Yeah, exactly. That's that's my thing is like this is a an abandonment yeah. of society and it's like yeah, that's it's the way the Amish went. Yeah. They make some cool tables, though. They I'll, say t- that. I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, great food, great furniture. Um, nice people. Nice, great people. Uh, but um, that that idea of of isolation is not. That's not what we're called for, in my opinion. Yeah, I don't. I don't see it as a blueprint for success. Yeah. In the mission. So yeah, that's the that's the benefit option. Yeah, a little bit of a different episode for you guys, but um, you know, if you're interested in that stuff, I um he he has a lot of thought-provoking stuff in there. Um 
he there's a whole chapter on on how we get involved in politics that we kind of skipped over and there's a bunch of other little strategies in there that he discusses yeah you mentioned the liturgy yeah a lot of stuff which i think has merit and i think i think is worth people knowing about and hearing but there's some other stuff that again we would probably find problematic so right but it's it's uh interesting nonetheless so yeah the benedict option by rod dreyer so if you're interested, definitely check it out. It's, uh, I mean, th- um, there's an interesting commentary in there. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So we hope you enjoyed it. Uh, have a great, have a great, fantastic, super awesome day. We'll catch you in the next one. All right. Bye-bye. Peace. <laughs>